0: Okay, let's start. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE for this event uh, this afternoon. Um, this is event is a part of uh, the LSE, Festi- LSE Literary Festival. Um, this year, the festival is focusing on Beverage 2.0. Um, and the aim of the festival is to launch whole year of events, which will look at the legacy of the Beverage Report, but also rethink its uh, major sort of talents in terms of how do we think about or rethink the welfare state for the 21st century and for a global context. Uh, My name is Hakan sechkin and I teach here in the school. I'm associate professor in the Department of Social Policy. Um, I welcome my colleagues uh, to the panel. Um, Immediately on my left... Uh, Duncan Green, who is a Senior Strategic Advisor at Oxfam-GB, Professor in Practice in International Development at LSE. Also Honorary Professor of International Development at Cardiff University and a Visiting Fellow at the Institute for Development Studies. Immediately next to Duncan, Dr. Armin Ishkanian um, is an Associate Professor and the Programme Director of the MSc in Social Policy and Development in the Department of Social Policy at LSC. Her research examines the relationship between civil society, democracy, development, and social transformation. Next to Armina, we have Ludovico Rogers. Um, Ludovica was an active participant in the Occupy movement and since then has been active in other groups that formed from or around the Occupy movement, such as the movement of the commons, the hashtag NoTTP... Uh, campaign, and Debt Resistance UK. She recently founded the cooperative Research for Action that develops investigations to support grassroots organizations in their struggles. Next to Ludovica, we have Dr. Richard McCurry, who is an Associate Professor in the Department of Sociology at the LSE. He's primarily interested in urban politics and culture, nonprofit organizations, and social movements. Thank you for Participating in the panel, thank you um, let me b- briefly outline what we are going to explore in this panel um, William Beveridge stated that a, re- a revolutionary moment in the world's history is a time for revolutions, not, not patching so how do we take this seriously if we have to think about welfare state in 21st century from a different position if it's not going to be a patchwork, that's what we are interested in And while we recognize the importance of the five giants as covering (laughs) essentials for life as a sort of policy interventions, we also feel that um, if we properly understand the ways in which civil society... We don't actually develop a new position unless we understand what happens to people's voices in this process. And five giants are important, but of course recognition... And redistribution are very interlinked processes. And without looking at the politics of um, recognition, we can't really rearticulate and rethink positions for redistribution, either locally or globally. And how do we recognise people's voices? So the panel will look at this from various positions: civil society, social movements, and NGOs, um, in order. To start, for me to finish this uh, introduction, i just like to remind you to put your phones onto the silent so that we are not disrupted, and also this is recorded and possibly will be a podcast, depending on the technological sort of issues. Um, you can also tweet, and there are two... Um, Hashtags for today. One of them is hashtag LSE beverage, and the, the other one hashtag LSE festival. Now, without further ado, we'll start with the first presentation. Uh, with Duncan Green, please. Thank you. Okay.
1: Thanks very much. I'll just stay sitting. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. It's, the, it's Saturday afternoon. You know, that's, that's right. right. Yes. Okay. Let's just relax. Um, okay, thanks very much. Just a few thoughts, really. So it was kind of interesting going back and looking at the five giants and thinking from the point of view of a, an international NGO like Oxfam. Um, What's changed uh, and how would we look at those five giants now? So I'll start with a few comments on that. So looking at want, poverty, the big shift in thinking about poverty in the international development debate has been a shift from income poverty to multidimensional poverty and beyond that to well-being. So I think people are getting very serious about trying to measure a kind of poverty that actually is relevant to poor people. We, got, we went down this alley, this blind alley of, of $1 a day, then one dollar twenty-five, then one dollar ninety, and that's not actually what poor people say when you ask them, and people have asked them. The World Bank did this fantastic study even in the 90s talking to 64,000 poor people in 23 countries and said, what is it like being poor? And they didn't say, damn it, I've got 99 cents a day. If I just have $1.01, 1 I'd be fine. You know, that's not how it works. They were talking about shame, humiliation, uh, 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 and sort of a a bunch of feelings which don't register on the income measure. So that's one thing. On disease, it's quite interesting that uh, Mexico recently became fatter than America. You've got an enormous range of non-communicable diseases becoming much more salient in countries like South Africa, Mexico, uh, Middle East, and actually you're now seeing a shift in the way we think about the burden of disease towards things which are not traditionally seen as development issues. If there is one campaign I would love to, to really get much bigger, it's a campaign on tobacco, mm. which kills 15 times more people in developing countries than malaria does. And so we're seeing northern diseases and northern health problems heading south and becoming truly global health problems, which is going to change the way we talk about, uh, about health issues. On ignorance, we've now got to a situation where almost all boys and girls go into primary school, but the big question now is whether they actually learn anything when they get there. So a big shift from quantity to quality and some appalling research findings in terms of people going to school for seven years not being able to re- write their own name when they come out. So a big debate on what do you do about that. The privatisation crew are in there, but so are the you know, the, the rethink uh, state education, all sorts of different uh, approaches to that basic problem that the quality of education is nowhere near good enough. On squalor... Um, Agencies like Oxfam have an enormous problem going urban. We did some sort of internal archaeology and found that Oxfam first promised to go urban in 1989 in its strategic plan, and we're still promising to go urban. So there's a kind of enormous fascination with the rural and rural squalor, whereas actually most people uh, now live in cities, and that's only going to rise. And we have a whole different world of shanty towns and social movements and political and social change in urban areas, which we're really not doing very well in terms of coming to terms with. Final one, idleness. Well, idleness might be making a comeback. Mm -hmm. So all the numbers on automation suggest that uh, the developing countries are the ones that are going to be hardest hit. You know, if you're in Bangladesh, where the garment industry has, ju- has created 5 million jobs, mainly for women, over the last few years and transformed gender relations and the Bangladeshi economy, the fact that there are various attempts now to, to make T-shirts without hu- human labor, you know, there's two or three companies in the States who think they can crack this, that would just wipe out the Bangladeshi economy overnight. So there's a lot of interest in issues around universal basic income in how do you make idleness more productive, in a way. A um, couple of comments on um, things which are missing from that checklist, as you alluded, can I think the whole question of global collective action, there's a kind of global civil society worrying about things like climate change, tax evasion, the arms trade, things which cannot be solved at the national level, and that's... That's a sort of potential role for northern NGOs, even when they become less important in terms of developing countries. So we're doing a lot of work on that. I think inequality is either the sixth giant or the underpinning Mm -hmm. link between the other five giants, and everybody's talking about inequality, different kinds of inequality, how you measure it, what do you mean by it, and what you do about it. And I would add power to that. So increasingly I see power as the kind of underlying force field of development and social change, and organisations like mine are trying to get much more forensic at understanding power and how it shifts in various social change processes. Final point, civil society is... um, I think, more important now than it was 70 years ago, almost everywhere, and it's more under threat. There is an enormous crackdown on civil society in dozens and dozens and dozens of countries. So whether civil society can actually um, take on the five giants in many countries is actually a moot point at the moment. There's been a big, big backlash.
0: Thank you. Great meetings. Thanks very much. (laughs) Armina.
2: Thanks, Hakan. Um, Okay, so... When we decided to plan this, it was to use Beveridge as a starting point and to go beyond. So I want to um, just read to you briefly from Beveridge's voluntary action report to see how he defines voluntary action. He doesn't use the word civil society, but he wrote, Voluntary action is everything that citizens do outside their duties to the state to improve the conditions of life for themselves and their fellows to improve conditions for himself and his fellows. That really falls into two main sections, which I distinguish as mutual aid and philanthropy. Mutual aid and philanthropy is how he defines it. These lead people to band themselves together to improve social conditions by their direct action and not by getting the state to do something. I find this very interesting because, you know, what is included is as important as what is not included, which is getting the state to do something mm. to change its behavior, to change its policies. So I think you know it's useful to have that, but also useful to think about how we've developed the concept of civil society in the context of social policy. So I tend to think about civil society in, in a more Gramscian sense, in terms of how actors within civil society, whether it's large NGOs like Oxfam or social movements or trade unions challenge the status quo. They struggle against inequality, poverty, scholar, any of those issues that Beveridge rightly pointed out. So I think we need to think about civil society in that role, not in terms of just meeting needs, but also recognizing why those needs exist and challenging the structural inequalities of why poverty is to the extent that it is. I think that's where uh, I'm starting from in terms of thinking about civil society and the five giants. Now if we fast forward from when Beveridge wrote his report to today, or at least from the 1990s to today, first we saw with the rollback of the state, NGOs moving in to take over some of the services, both in countries in Europe, in the United States obviously, but also in different parts of the world, in sub-Saharan African countries, South Asia and so forth. In some places, NGOs became even more powerful than some states, and equated, in, for instance, in the former Soviet countries where I did research, NGOs became equated with civil society, which I think was problematic. And there was this critique that they had become perhaps too close to com- you know to states, to donors. And when the wave of protests began in 2010 with the Arab Spring occupy. And others, it was very interesting because when we did research, one of the questions was, well, where are the NGOs? Where why are they not here? Or how do NGOs, you know, engage with the activists? And on the surface it would appear, yes, the NGOs were not present. But when we looked a little bit deeper, it was very more, you know, a bit more complex than that where you did have individual NGO employees there in their personal citizen capacity, but also under-the-radar relationships between NGOs and activists, which perhaps were initially more productive, becoming less so over time. So I think we need to think about these relationships between different kinds of actors within civil society, including the large NGOs, but also the smaller grassroots groups, the activists, and so forth and this i think is going to become even more important in the context as duncan mentioned where we have the phenomenon of shrinking space of civil society where over 100 countries have now passed legislation restricting civil society action and that's 100 countries not just you know the the dictatorships and the authoritarian regimes but including Some democratic countries which pass legislation, including the Transparency of Lobbying, Non-Party Campaigning, and Trade Union Administration Act of the UK of 2014, which some refer to as the gagging law, which restricts how charities, how NGOs can engage government on issues, how they can advocate, how they can campaign. So what I would like to think about is, Two questions. One is, how can civil society contribute to addressing the five giants? And second is, what is the legitimate role of civil society vis-a-vis the these, you know, social policy issues? And I think this is particularly important, as everyone keeps telling us we are in the age of populism, in the age of anger, in the age of you know, whatever you want to call it, where pe- a- citizens are angry. So what is the role of social policy in addressing some of the issues that lead to anger? So to conclude my remarks, I think civil society can have an important role, but it needs, as Duncan already stated, space in which to act, and that space is shrinking. So it's not just space to deliver services, but to ask the important questions, the difficult questions. Second, I think it needs independence. Civil society organizations and actors need independence. So it's not just not saying the things that are uncomfortable But asking those questions, saying the unsayable, because, you know, before, I think, 2011 and the discussions around the 99% and inequality, those discussions were not as prominent as perhaps they have become today, even if they are still challenged. So I think independence, to be able to ask difficult questions and raise issues is important and independence from both state and also the market, which is increasingly funding some organizations in civil society. And the last point is I think we need accountability because, as some people like David Reif and Ken Anderson always point out, the only accountability is the ballot box. don't necessarily agree, but I think um, we need to also think about the accountability of the actors within civil society. So I'll end my remarks
0: Thanks. there. Thank you, Armini. Thank you. Ludovica, over to you. Thank, you.
3: Thank you. Well, thanks for the invitation to participate in this panel. Um, I'm not an academic uh, like the other speakers on this panel, so uh, my talk will be based on my personal experience. given me the privilege to encounter like some very inspiring activists across Europe and the UK. I'm also not that used to public speaking, so I'm afraid I'm going to read from what I <laughs> I prepared. I hope you don't mind. Um, so, yeah, this panel was asked to discuss and challenge the top-down approach of defining welfare needs and well-being. I'd like to start by putting the emphasis on the fact that defining and campaigning for the recognitions of needs is very different from deciding if and how they should be addressed and implementing solutions to respond to those needs. Today, we're clearly stuck in a situation in which broad parts of civil society and the media have been crying out loud about the declining conditions of people's lives in this country and across Europe but very little is being done about it by our governments except for exasperating even further these conditions. Some of you might remember that one of the criticisms of the Occupy movement was, was that it had no demands. What the media failed, failed to explain was that it wasn't that we didn't have demands, we simply didn't have anyone to address them to. Already seven years ago, we had lost any hope and respect for the political elites captured by their own interests, that's, that of their parties, and of the corporations that fund them. Unfortunately, little has changed now. If not, it has got worse. When those in power ignore democracy, traditional forms of protesting are not enough to make a real impact. What I need are new and different forms of organizing. So what I would like to do today is briefly talk through some of these examples. Um, I'll talk only of of two examples, but there are many happening across Europe at the moment and, and that have been happening since 2011. The first story comes from Thessaloniki, which is the second largest city in Greece. In 2013, the government announced it would be privatizing the city's water and sanitation company. This was received with a strong resistance from the workers of the company and from the Thessaloniki citizens who set up an organization called 136 Initiative. The name came from a symbolic number, 136, which represented the amount in euros that each citizen would have to pay if they were to participate in a collective bidding of the ownership of the company. It was derived by dividing the price for which the company was listed in the stock market by the number of meters it served in the city. The idea was to set up a network of local cooperatives of citizens that would locally own and govern the water company. Within a year, the 136 initiative set up the local level cooperatives and found the necessary funding to bid for the company. It organized an impressive resistance, built international solidarity and convinced the Thessaloniki municipalities to also join them. To put further pressure on the government, an alliance of groups, including the 136 initiative, self-organized a city-wide referendum to ask citizens if they were in favor or not of this privatization. It was to be a non-binding referendum and to be run at the same time as the municipal municipal and regional elections in May 2014. The referendum took place thanks to the collaboration of hundreds of volunteers who supervised ballot boxes outside the municipal electoral polls, with the entire process of voting and counting being monitored by local and international observers. The results were overwhelming, with 98% of the voters stating they want, were against the privatization and at least a third of the Thessaloniki-registered citizens taking part. I'll read out a, briefly a comment from one of the activists, Theo who was involved in the initiative. He says... The referendum is undoubtedly the biggest grassroots mobilization the city has seen in years. It required a high grade of sustained commitment and responsibility on behalf of a great number of people. It was an empowering moment where Thessalonians felt that they had recovered a bit of their dignity taken away from them by four years of austerity and dispossession. On 18th May, we thus planted a small seed of direct democracy and citizens' participation in politics. The Initiative 136 was able to bid for the company, but was rejected on a basis of a dubious technicality. Sadly, then, the privatization was imposed externally by the EU. The other story comes from Spain, which remains a hot spot of inspiration still today. There are many stories that can be told of what is happening there, the last being the Catalonian referendum. I was focused on the one that I've been following most closely, which is called the Platform for Citizen Debt Audits, which I will refer to as PACD from now on. A lot of what is happening today grew from the aspiring assemblies of the squares of 2011. Soon after the people left the squares, hundreds of autonomous groups were set up to develop localised and issue-specific campaigns. The PACD was one of them. It formed in late 2011 with the aim to mobilise citizens around financial transparency and accountability of institutions and to demand the reputation of debts that citizens deemed illegitimate. Since 2000, the debt of local councils in Spain have more than doubled, impacting directly the essential services they they were meant to deliver. So the PACD proposed the use of citizen debt audits as an instrument for all the population to critically and analyse the debt policy carried out by the authorities and its impact on the population. The PACD describes the citizen order as, and I'll quote them, a process to collectively understand how we have arrived at the current situation, what economic, social, cultural, environmental, gender, and political impact has this indebtedness created. The PACD also has helped set up what are called citizen municipal observatories, which I will refer to as CMOs. CMOs were initiatives consisting of groups of people locally organized who, through an online platform, translated municipal budgets into clear infographics and supported citizens in filing inquiries related to those budgets with the municipality. Thanks to the combined work of the PACD and the CMOs, numerous municipalities passed motions against the illegitimate debt. And following the election of radical mayors in Madrid and Barcelona, these municipalities have now set up official debt order commissions. I'm also part of a group called Debt Resistance UK, which is doing very similar work here in the UK, and I'm happy to talk about it even on a personal level later if anyone's interested. As the piece ACD states, only through and I'm quoting them, only through collective understanding, we can, we can, from an informed citizenship, propose alternatives that truly respond to the needs and interests of the populations. To reclaim democracy, the economy, and the institutions, we need to understand how the various elements of the system operate and support others in the same process. I'll just conclude making a small comparison with um, the the hacker culture, and I'll explain why. So from these examples, we can see how citizens are taking democracy back in their hands without waiting for authorization from above. As people acknowledge they cannot rely on institutions to act in their interests, citizens react by providing new autonomous structures to exert exert their their democratic rights interaction and cooperations with institutions and mainstream media is not completely rejected but is undertaken on the citizens' own terms with an emphasis on demanding greater accountability and transparency from existing structures. This form of activism seems to have assimilated what has been defined as the hands-on approach of hacker culture which the American journalist Levy defined in his book, Hackers, Heroes of the Computer Revolution, which I'll just quote here. So it's Hackers believe that essential lessons can be learned about the systems, from taking things apart, seeing how they work, and using this knowledge to create new and even more interesting things. This seems to be the attitude taken by citizens in the stories I describe. the main mantra being, if we want to change the system, we need to take it apart, learn how it operates, and then using that knowledge, create new and more effective systems. Learning does not necessarily precede the action on the country. Often it is required through the experiment of building new tools. Through self-education and self-organization, citizens work through iteration, testing ideas as they go along, in a very similar way to how branching and forking is used in software development. The process itself becomes a form of empowerment, where each incremental step is defined in autonomy and not dictated from above or from a central committee. Fundamental for this to happen is the open sharing of information and tools between between autonomous groups, so that each action can be easily replicated by others, and that, and, and then developed by them in a unique way, reproducing, again, practices common in the open source software development. This allows for local autonomous groups to be set set up whose decisions and actions are not dictated by hierarchical top-down organizations. There are, yes, sometimes central committees, but their main role is to provide the tools and the information for the local groups then to self-organize or to promote the actions as activities of part of a common front. Given the economic and environmental crisis we are facing, we cannot wait for the perfect tools and instruments to be handed down to us, nor can we count anymore on those in power acting on our behalf. We need to learn how the existing malfunctioning structures operate, dismantle them, experiment with new forms, and create the building blocks of the future we want to see. And this approach is not that far from the building blocks of the welfare state, from how the building blocks of the welfare state were created in the past century. And I'll leave it to that.
0: Thank you.
4: I'm an academic but I'm also going to read Um, and partly that's because I have a lot of things that I want to get through very quickly and I will lose track Um, which I assume is also partly why you were doing that Um, uh, briefly where I'm coming coming at this problem from a very specific place. That is, I used to be an organizer, I was a labor organizer and a community organizer for a long time. Um, I'm now an academic who writes some about these issues. I teach a class on social change organizations, I teach on social movements, things like that in the Department of Sociology, not social policy, like it says up there. Um, Although I have nothing against social policy people. Um, um, And I'm going to begin with a very brief anecdote which will orient you to this, which is, I once got a comment from a student about a class that I taught on social change organizations where I get a lot of activists, activist types and so on, or wannabe activists. And the comment said, this class is where hope goes to die. (laughs) Um, And it's not that I have no hope. It's that I'm concerned about a lack of attention about the overall health and well-being of the institutions that support and enable civil society to function, to facilitate democracy. Okay? And when we're thinking about the role of civil society relative to the welfare state, this is an essential consideration. So it's not just that civil society has functions. It's what functions is it actually able to, to perform in a given institutional and organizational environment. Okay? Um, so uh, there are many definitions of civil society, and some of the most important entail the idea that civil society can be the source of challenges to the state uh, and unequal social relationships, very much like what you were discussing. Um, but is this so? Is this inherent? Probably not. Um, So judging by the behavior of most authoritarian governments these days, it is not. Or it is only so in very particular ways and particular circumstances. NGOs are thriving in places like Turkey and China. China was once a totalitarian regime. The place is now overrun with NGOs doing all sorts of things, Um, just as much as they do in uh, the United States and India. Judging by the way they spend their money. American and Indian elites, for example, feel far less threatened by civil society organizations than they do by the government. Nonetheless, civil society organizations were instrumental, for example, in the demise of the Soviet Empire, what we often refer to as the heroic era of civil society, and many argue that civil society can animate social movements and organize a public sphere that checks state power. Maybe, sometimes, but civil society has also been enrolled in governance around the world, and it is safe to say that this enrolling is not making civil society organizations either more available or more capable of transforming broad social circumstances like extreme and growing socioeconomic inequality. There are important exceptions. Labor union membership, for example, has a quite direct inverse correlation with high GINI coefficients. That means that the more people there are in labor unions, the less inequality there likely is to be in a society, It is probably for this reason that unions are regulated by governments and legally ring-fenced to ensure that their ability to mobilize the power of their members is highly constrained. The direction of law is to transform unions into advocacy organizations and then to kill them off. (laughs) For a long time, elites didn't understand that uh, civil society could be used in these ways. Totalitarian regimes and slave societies viewed civil society as a threat. Even liberal republics like Tocqueville's early United States uh, were deeply suspicious of citizen organizations. It took a whole series of Supreme Court cases before it became possible for you to organize a nonprofit organization like Dartmouth College because it was viewed as an inappropriate organization of power outside of democratic government. State bureaucracies, many of them welfare state bureaucracies, worked to minimize the voice of citizens and the power of citizen organizations in the name of expert autonomy, but that is much less true today. Today, elites understand that civil society is not to be feared, it is to be used. Civil society can be manipulated, seeded, channeled, and directed to reinforce elite power, demobilize citizens, and facilitate governance in the name of anti-democratic political projects. So consider the following. There are now 260 nonprofit firms operating in the United States that sell turnkey participation services to governments, philanthropies, corporations, and even the military. And at last count, there are approximately 80 such firms in the UK. Mass based associations have been in decline since World War II. Civil society organizations have become more professionalized, rationalized, and efficient, but the scope of their activities has shrunk, and lay participation in core organizational activities has declined. Today, when confronted with unionization efforts, Walmart, one of the largest uh, retail chains in the world, it's Aldi in the UK doesn't call the cops, it calls out its own members, yes it has members, to counter-protest. When confronted with regulatory efforts, the pharmaceutical and tobacco industries mobilize their customers into advocacy groups to protest and influence legislators and regulators. So what's going on in civil society? First is the decline of intermediation. That is, there has been a long-term decline in civil society organizations that are simply about building citizen power and developing citizen subjectivity. Organizations that mediate between citizen and state or citizen and company are in decline. Organizations that have as their goal constituting a collective subjectivity are a smaller component of the landscape of civil society than they have been in the past. Two, civil society organizations have become increasingly formalized and dependent upon fees and funding sources that are disconnected from their constituents or their clients, which creates a lot of room for mission drift, oligarchical decision-making, and elite channeling. Three, elite appropriation, Elites are now actively using and manipulating civil society for their own interests. The purpose and effect is not domination but relativization and the fragmentation of collective subjects. This reduces every issue to a contest of opinions rather than an issue of right versus wrong or public versus particular. And this in turn undermines the accountability of politicians, bureaucrats, and corporations to the public. There's still plenty of efforts to secure greater democratization, inclusion, and equity in civil society, but they are now in a much more intense competition for resources, authority, and attention than they have been in the past. Four, the rationalization of organizations and organizations and funders around a few issues. This is driven in part by the need to deal with increasingly complicated issues and bureaucracies. Uh, As an example, most American uh, professionalized foundations now only work on issues of climate change and poverty, um, which if you're an organization and needs funding support working on something else, creates an incredibly difficult environment for you. So a secondary effect of this rationalization is that NGOs and civil society become increasingly bad at adapting to change in the institutional environment. Finally, there is the slow collapse of the infrastructures of support for contentious or challenging political activity. To have positive emergent properties, that is to be innovative, responsive, and diverse, or to mediate between citizens and the powerful, civil society itself must be diverse, open-ended, and organized around democratic values rather than the efficient delivery of outputs. Unfortunately, funders are tying money to best practices and performance metrics that militate against the sustaining of a diverse civil society. There's now a large population of philanthropy consultant organizations, which were basically designed to introduce professional management practices into philanthropic governance. Organizations that build power in citizen sh- citizenship capacities or reflect the values of citizen members are subject to increasing regulation or even direct political attack. But even when they aren't, there are important institutional constraints And these are constraints that imagining a new welfare state should be oriented to. Law, for example, mostly doesn't recognize or know how to cope with alternative organizational models, ownership structures, collective subjects, and so on. This isn't always a problem, but as soon as a legal issue comes up, it is a problem, and the organization will be forced to change, simply because a judge and the law can't recognize the specificity of the organization. So civil society itself is being starved of the oxygen it needs to sustain itself, not by active repression, but by rationalization, fragmentation, inattention, and manipulation. (laughs) Civil society can potentially tap into the tremendous power of the organized people and organized money that exists in society to resuscitate a politics of the public, but it is mostly not organized to do that currently, and there is very little attention to the infrastructure and institutional issues that would make it such. To rebuild a welfare state around an impactful civil society is a terrific idea, Civil society is much to contribute that states aren't particularly good at. They're innovative. They constitute collective subjects. They secure recognition of needs and constituents. They're more responsive. Um, They can organize around meaningful interests rather than efficiency. Uh, But to address the challenges that face civil society today, we must be much more focused on infrastructural and institutional issues that organize the ground on which civil society operates. Finally, we should recognize what civil society can't do. States are both more powerful and often more equitable interveners in society than civil society is. Um, If you want to ensure that even the poorest or the most marginalized citizens are going to be delivered a good, governments are far more likely to do that than civil society organizations are. Um, If you want to ensure that that young kids have access to physical activity, well, parks are much better systems for ensuring that poor people, are, poor kids, are able to do that than soccer clubs are. Um, one is a civil society uh, uh, instrument; the other is public. Checking the power of multinational corporations and entrenched elites is far easier for states than it is for civil society. In fact, the degree to which American governance has come to rely upon and c- celebrate civil society as a solution to the problems in society is quite directly correlated with the expansion and inequality in the United States. That's not accidental, I would say. Civil society organizations can make society more resilient and can sustain more democracy, and this is tremendously important for rectifying the injustices of society today. But to have a transformative impact, we need states and civil societies that are organized around the relative advantages of each and we need to be uh, act very clear about the. Uh, uh, we need to actively clear the ground and encourage the civil society that we need.
0: Thanks. Thank you. Uh, before we go to the audience for questions, I think the panel will like to would like to discuss a little bit among themselves. So, um, just to make some observations of my own. I think it's quite interesting, um, as Duncan sort of recognized in, in, in his speech, of course the concerns captured in the five giants are still with us globally. They are really not going away. All these issues are still very important and more complexly sort of presenting themselves across the world. But then we also have, it seems, this sort of issue of the civil society, whether civil society is the actor which can help governments to 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 deliver positive outcomes on these sort of dealing with these five giants problems across the world. Can that be done? But then we have a discussion, it seems, that uh, organizational civil society itself has become possibly grounds for inequality or perpetuating inequality. Um, and in that sense, I think we are sort of struggling with this. If we look at from the, the Five Giants' position, the supply side policies sort of paternalistically decided what we need to deliver to whom and how far those kinds of approaches will allow people's voices to bring new issues to the sort of political debate, how they can actually negotiate uh, new ways to redistribute resources both in countries or outside sort of globally, more sort of in terms of between countries. And I just wondered, listening to all of you, I, I wondered whether we are focusing too much um, on civil society organizations, civil society as an organizational sphere, and we are actually losing what is happening from ground up and challenging many of these systems and, and are we able to even see some of these movements and hear some of these voices if we keep looking from the organizational perspective to this. Because in some ways, all sorts of people, groups, and I have a whole list here, struggles to to be recognized as people with different sexual orientations and gender identities. Groups who want to be identified as proper citizens in Europe Roma, migrants Kurds in Turkey, Rohingya in Myanmar all these groups are systemically sort of excluded in that sense if they are not recognized within the system can civil society organizations recognize them in those contexts to redistribute resources to address their needs whatever they may be so I'll just leave with these thoughts but if you have questions to each other I think it would be quite helpful I want to go
1: to the okay. audience,
2: so you carry on. Okay. Um, thanks, Hakan, for bringing that together. I have two points. Um, one is listening to Vika and, and Michael. You're both talking about the state and, you know, the relationship. And I was thinking, you know, Michael, I don't necessarily disagree with you in terms of the state's role in meeting these needs much better than civil society. But if the state is captured by the elites and doesn't listen... How then do you get the state to do what it's supposed to do? And I think that's where we are now. And that's where, you know, Occupy started from, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but we don't trust you. And I think this is the, the challenge is how do you do that? And thinking back to what some people have written about the strange non-death of neoliberalism, you know, the argument is that perhaps civil society, not in terms of organized civil society, remains the best hope from which to wage at least a challenge so again, I'm going back to my Gramscian arguments, but I think you know, in that sense. The other point is we're talking about the local struggles, and I think Vika's point about you know, hacking democracy at the very local level is very important, and I think we've seen this in the UK in terms of what happened in Haringey and so forth. But you know, going to what Duncan said, we need global movements, global civil society action around common issues of inequality, climate change, so forth. How do you link those together, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think, I'm not saying, you know, you can't link them, but it's about thinking through that, not to repeat what happened in earlier decades where the global north begins to organize the global that's south right. and calls it global civil society. So, that's just my 2%. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, okay. <laughs> I <would
3: not. laughs>
4: um, okay, I mean, I, I think, yes, of course, states are often <laughs> captured by elites, Maybe always captured by elites, but civil society is too. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. (laughs) Um, um, And neither one of them has, both of them have possibilities for democratization contained within them. And so what I'm mostly arguing against is the idea that these are fundamentally distinct. That these that these have fundamentally different democratic characteristics or democratic potentials. I don't think that's true. They have different democratic potentials, um, and it becomes about leveraging <laughs> these things in appropriate ways. But I also, uh, you know, what I strongly want to push back against is the idea that civil society is a simple solution to the problems of the state, and it has as many problems. Um, uh, and you know, you know, one of my favorite examples for how these things get channeled and disrupted is uh, the case of participatory budgeting. So participatory budgeting was a uh, tool that was implemented by the Workers Party in Brazil to uh, include far more you know. Broaden inclusion to marginalized groups in Brazilian municipal life. And it started out as this real democratization effort. And 10 years later, it was a best practice of the World Bank that was required as a basis for receiving World Bank funding. And, you know, at that point, it's not about democratization anymore. It's about legitimation. Um, And the the amount of time it took to travel from one location to the other was extraordinarily brief. Um, And so, yeah, no, I mean, I'm interested in these other ways of doing things. I would also say, though, that there's no such thing as unorganized civil society. Um, There's always organization. Even if it's just in informal networks, that's still a mode of organization. It's not formal organization, but it's organized. Um, The spontaneous uprising is not something that I think exists. Um, So there's always organization. And I do think formalization is an important distinguishing line between a lot of the dynamics that are underpinning uh, the sort of distortion of civil society in these directions, and informal organization is where a lot of the potential for democratization happens, but the grounds for informal organization that's democratizing is also being undermined in a lot of ways. It's undermined by the demise of intermediation, for example. It's undermined by the demise of community. Um, So a lot of these sorts of things undermine that as well.
1: Yeah, I'm going to break my promise. Um, So I think it's quite interesting in these conversations because there's a bunch of sort of implicit, these things are good and these things are bad, mm, yeah. which, which yeah. creep yeah. through these conversations. Um, local is always good, right? You never hear local's bad, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, I'm sure, yeah, Michael can say anything, everything is bad. That's clear from his student comments. Um, uh, LAUGHTER Actually, what about scale, right? Is it great to do things locally? Yes, of course it is. But actually, if you are trying to transform large numbers of countries, then suddenly you need scale. And at scale, to do, go to scale, you need money. Money is always bad, right? Raising money from anyone is always bad. Well, actually... Then you can't pay the trucks to get people to the demonstration. Then you can't pay the food. Then, you know, you actually need money for these things. And you don't, and this is where I I agree with Michael that the civil society is far weaker than the state because there's no equivalent of the taxation mechanism with civil society. So, where do you get this money from that you need to take anything above a purely local level? Two other things which I think professional is bad. I don't get that. I mean, I wouldn't. I work for Oxfam. But professional, professional is actually depends, right? Professional can take you away from something. A good professional actually makes you better at staying with people and, mm-hmm. and getting it to scale. So I think we need to be a bit careful with some of the implicit sort of um, uh, framings we use. Two other things. One is I think granularity is really interesting. So what you get uh, in in, all the studies from Tarot and Tilly and all the people of of civil society movements over the years is you get these huge upsurges which look like amorphous blobs, uh, Occupy, Tahrir Square, whatever. The interesting bit is the grains which come together coalesce to make those moments because when the moment goes, the grains remain. And those are the little units of civil society, some of them formal, some of them informal. So in Tahrir Square, the, the key... Combatants that defended the protesters from the police were the Muslim Brotherhood and the football club supporters who spent every Saturday fighting. This is their territory, right? They do this. And we don't recognise, certainly, the football club supporters as civil society, um, as NGOs, as CSOs. So we need to rethink, I think, the, the definition. And, um, I'll stop there, but there's a lot... We need to be a bit more forensic, I think, about what we're talking about.
3: Can
0: I just... Yes, something? of course, please, um, yeah.
3: I also think we have to be careful not to talk about the state as like one clearly defined thing and civil society as well. And what I find very, very often misses in in these conversations is is the level of the municipal level. Um, And the examples that I spoke about were very, very much connected to the municipal level. Um, And if you look across Europe, there's actually a lot of experimentation happening at this, uh, and not only Europe, I mean, if you look at Rojava as well, it's incredibly inspiring. Um, and so, how can, and at that level, how can we see civil society, grassroots organisations, the state, the municipal level work work together? Um, and it's also been used to like scale up uh, through networks. So that there was, for example, in the No Ttip campaign that I was involved in, like there were municipalities across France that were like linking up and saying we're a No Ttip pre zone. Uh, even if their state wasn't fighting against TTIP, at the local level, they were creating like a network. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to bring that level into the, the conversation because I think it's a really a, a place where transformation can happen at, at this moment in time.
0: I think just to add, I, I think what I meant by organization, of course, Michael is right. I mean, there are always organizational relations and people organize themselves. But I was talking more about the formalization of that organizational forms into organizations. And in that, given all these dynamics we are talking about in terms of coercing in a way, certain way of organizations who behave in certain ways, there's a certain um, decline in the way in which these organizations then relate back to where they come from. And then voices are lost, and it's just formalization has its own problems, essentially.
4: So, I mean, I'll, uh, can I say one thing about that? Yeah. We radically underestimate how much organization itself carries with it its own logic yes. and how disruptive that can be for the original mission or orientation and values of the people who form an organization. Yes. And this is a core insight of organizational sociology, and most people who study social movements, study municipal politics, they ignore it. Um, but it's, it's tremendously it's important. important. Yes.
0: Thank you. Over to you now. Questions from the audience, please. Um, when you ask, could you please sort of direct your question, one or more, of the panelists so that uh, it would be easier to respond? I have a roving mic. Um, and then, yes, we have uh, mics here. I will take perhaps uh, three questions at one time. Go on. <laughs> yes, please. Um, could we take the mic up? No, no, on the left here. Yeah.
5: Thank you very much for your uh, interesting talk. I'm interested in. So now we have been talking about civil society and more like progressive movements in civil society, but we can also see, for example, in Europe, that there have been movements, whether they are like whether they are grassroots movement. I would maybe doubt, but there's movements in civil society, like for example the movement Mouvement uh, Identitaire in Europe, um, but also movements, for example, in Germany, like Pegida movements, which are not progressive, which kind of root back to um, very c- conservative, uh, very, very right-wing, right-extreme um, traditions. And I wonder, um, how, would you, how would you evaluate that? And in how far is this a problem for civil society? And in how far do you think that there's actually enough um, movement in, in, in kind of the rest of the society, which is probably the majority, to kind of counter counter-tackle that? Um, Yeah, I think um, to who would I direct the question? Maybe to um, um, Amin and maybe um, also to Michael.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Next question. Yes, please, up there on the right. Yeah.
6: Hello, thank you also very much for your presentations. I was wondering a little bit about the way that we keep talking in these um, conversations about the state in a very negative way about how it's been captured by the elites and like the establishment, how it's always called also in the media. Um, and the, of course, there's a lot of negative ways to say about how politics work, but I also feel that these, the way that we talk about it, as when we talk about it, in the, in contrasting with the civil society, also has this harmful effect of people don't want to get involved in official politics and people that have very good intentions and want to change things. They don't want to, like I know a lot of, lot of people that want to do something good, but they don't want to get involved in politics because politics are bad and politics are dirty. Um, and I feel like, especially in countries, in Western countries, where we still kind of, or in a lot of countries where we can, well, we should be able to trust our democratic institutions, shouldn't we also want to get involved in in these institutions and try to mm-hmm. change things from the inside and I don't know who's, you can all answer that I want to
1: answer Is
0: there another question in the first row, just here, please thank you Thank you uh, My question is very um, direct um, civil society is, is hampered, It is restricted by law, Europe is very civilized if, if, if I may say so Africa south of the Sahara is not so civilised. So I think that for change to actually occur at the grassroots level, direct action is what is demanded of of the people. And how can civil society assist them
7: in bringing their demands and legitimate uh, rights to the state to effect meaningful change? Thank you.
0: Um.
2: Who's that question to? Uh, Yes. I'll
7: go with Duncan.
0: So let's start with the first question. Okay. Um, Armina and Michael.
2: Okay. um, Thanks for the question. I think it's important to challenge the normative conceptualization of civil society. I think we often fall into that, you know... It's also very relative, because I remember, you know, in Bosnia, they would come in and they say, these are the good civil society, and that's the bad civil society. (laughs) Well, isn't that where you're standing? But I I think that can also be, you know, a slippery slope, because then do we lose all sense of, you know, this is actually somewhat problematic, that we shouldn't kind of lose that moral compass. So I think, in a sense, my perception is that what we want is a pluralistic democracy, which allows you know for for competitive kind of co- competition between different actors but yes you are going to have actors within civil society that are not progressive and i think we're seeing that more and more but what we want is the space to be able to challenge those actors and to call them out because you know if you begin to restrict what what means that you're not going to be restricting you know how how that becomes a blanket restriction so michael
4: um yeah i endorse what you said i i just, but the main point is that we, we tend to treat civil society as having inherent values mm. um, because we want to associate it with democratization and these other things. And it's, it is associated with those things. But it's also associated with not those things. Um, so, uh, you know, Hannah Arendt has a theory about totalitarianism, which is rooted in the atomization of people, that is the demise of civil society. But the Nazis and the fascists in Italy emerged out of the most densely, out of the parts of those countries of the most dense civil societies. Right? They were the most organized. They were the most associated. Um, civil society has no inherent ideological content. It's either organized around interests or values, but those values can be reactionary. They can be you know, exclusionary. They can be ethno-nationalist. Um, so you know, another heroic era for civil society is the black church in the American South during civil rights. And that was a tremendously important role for civil society organizations to play in enabling and sustaining that movement. But white resistance was also organized in civil society through white citizens' councils. Um, Like, there wasn't, they were all civil society organizations. Um, And by the way, that was also all a defense of local politics versus national politics, which was trying to liberalize that society. Um, um, So, you know, it's very important to keep in mind that civil society does not have, at that level, that sort of inherent content. However, a long time ago, civil society did refer to forms of sociability more than organizations, mm. um, and in that sense, it was more around the values you were just okay. discussing. And in that sense, there is an important distinguishing characteristic here. It is rooted in ideas, uh, practices of tolerance, right? Um, um, that's sort of how this idea was originally invoked. Uh, but you know, the way that we think about it nowadays, it's hard to make organizational distinctions on that basis.
1: Yeah. Um, Duncan, second yeah. question, so, please. So the, the state—I've become increasingly statist. I used to be like... you know, I support the guerrilla struggles in Central America, and the state was always bad. Um, but it is interesting that there's this this um, sort of split thought about... You know, Hegel called, it, called the state the path of God in the world, and Orwell called it a boot stamping on a human face forever. And people tend to line up with one or the other. Um, uh, I think increasingly, yeah, in the 20th century, the state killed, I think, three or four times more people Internally than in wars between states, uh, the state was often looked like a boot stamping on a human face. This century, the place you don't want to be is places without states. You know, off you go to Somalia if you don't like the state. Off you go to South Sudan. Off you go to you know, the the the, the problem now is fragile and weak and absent states f- in terms of the the bloodbath that's going on in those places. So we've sort of gone back to Hobbes a bit in terms of where we're at. Um, on, on the the other question on. Uh, on on civil society, that it's linked to direct action. So I think a couple of things, really. One is direct action is often very short-term, very sort of an explosive moment. And what civil society does, if it works properly, is help prolong and connect that explosion of protest to a reform process. So Jonathan Fox at Washington University did a very interesting study in Mexico on uh, the municipalities that moved towards a more... Uh, accountable, more sort of democratic form, even under the pre, under the um, uh, Institutional Revolutionary Party, uh, which ruled Mexico for 70 years. And he, he found a cycle of protest, which was often quite spontaneous, ended by deals between civil society organisations and reformers in the local state, which would then lead to a process of reform. When that reform ran out... And there would be a quiet period when those reforms were agreed and implemented. And when that reform was exhausted, there'd be another explosion. And you've got a sort of upward circle of accountability through that cycle of of protest and uh, reform. You get that if you've got functioning state and functioning civil society to actually talk and come to the agreement and then see it through. So I think it's that channeling role uh, is quite important. Otherwise, you just have cathartic protests which then go away again and not much happens.
3: Can I also comment course, on the last yeah, uh, question? Um, so the Occupy movement, or at least like some of us involved, weren't saying, "Oh, we don't need the state." It's just it's moving too slowly, and it's moving in the opposite direction of, of where we hope it to go. So what I was trying to say in this talk is like we can't wait around. We need to be building and working and um, building the structures that we want for the future already. A really like practical example in the UK, um, there used to be something called the Audit Commission that would monitor the finance of local government across the UK. The previous Conservative government got rid of that. And now no one is looking at local government finance except for the uh, four big accountancy firms, and we see local government going bust. What citizens have are, are rights that you can actually use what is called the Order and Accountability Act to actually challenge the um, the, finance, the financial decisions of your local government. And what we're trying to work on is actually getting citizens to use these, these processes. So it's kind of like getting those elements of democracy that are there but are hidden and no one is using and actually, like, amplifying them and, and reclaiming them to make sure that our democracy works in our own favor.
0: Just to add to what Duncan was saying also, in terms of, you know, the absence of state is really where people are suffering, but also the rising authoritarian states around number of previously democratic spaces are killing a lot of activism in those states. So it's just underlying the the importance of democratic structures for any sensible protest or change to be observed through protest because uh, they just kill entire space for any voice. So it's quite important. Yes, second round questions. Any other questions? Yes, there's one. There's up that... Just let's take the first one on the right, here, and then the next one is up on the left.
5: Um, I'm kind of following on from your question. Um, I guess I kind of want to know if civil society... Like, we're talking
3: about civil society at the moment kind of being a response to captured and corrupt states... Um, and be in states that aren't working as we would hope they would do, like democratically. Um, and I guess I'd kind of like to explore the idea of ideally, where would you, what parts do you want, or do we think civil society and government should play? Would you ideally want them in the end, in like a <laughs> utopia, for them to, there to be no need for civil society because democratic um, states are so effective? Um, or whether you'd want them to kind of play a checks and balances role, or, um, yeah, interested in kind of I- the ideal roles of civil society and governance.
7: Thank you. Yes, please. Yes, thank you very much for the panelists, to the panelists. Uh, my question is around um, civil society in the global south, particularly in sub Saharan Africa. While in the West, for example, we see that the growth of civil society has been somewhat sociocultural. It's somewhat organic. It's people organizing themselves together. The trend we're seeing in the global south, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, is some funding-induced society, uh, civil society. So funding... Um, supported or funding founded civil society. So it's not founded because there is a genuine social cause that people need to, that people identify with, is not organically formed. It's formed because there's a, there's a request for proposal or there's a grant application and then people come together to fill the grant application form and begin to oppress civil society in that way. How can we quickly arrest this trend? And, and be, because it has potential damaging effects for the future of civil society, particularly in sub Saharan Africa. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much. One more question for this round. Uh, Yes, please, Yeah.
5: Thank you. I have a question for um, anyone on the the panel who sort of thinks um, they'd like to jump in. So traditionally, the way I said, it, a big role of civil society was acting as a conduit between individuals and the state. Um, So, you know, they would collect opinions and feedback and then pass it on to the state in the form of advocacy. But nowadays, you've seen it most recently, last week in the wake of the Florida shootings, sort of individuals can use social media as a megaphone. You you saw a high school student who sent out a tweet and got retweeted 50,000 times and elicited an immediate response from politicians. So um, is that sort of... Should civil society look to see that function and sort of embrace the potential of social media to give individuals a voice Mm. and step away from their traditional role of acting as a conduit?
0: Thank you. Yes, the first question, who did you want to answer? Okay, everyone. <laughs> so who wants to take the first question? Maybe Armine. Okay. Michael, perhaps?
2: <laughs> I think, you know, to go back to the point, um, this it is this issue of scaling up, but scaling up in order to have greater impact, as you were saying, you know, in, to, in terms of taking that action further, There is this point of, you know, there is a danger within that in terms of loss of independence, of becoming part of that institution that you were once protesting. So I think if we look at it over the long term, it's always going to be cycles of contention, what terror would would call. And I think that is perhaps what we also saw in the protests in 2011 and 2010, where some of the actors that used to be in the streets had become so institutionalized that they were no longer there. We're now facing a new generation that was challenging it, and I think that's where we can see the cycle happening. So I think there is there is definitely that, but I think we also need to go back. I like your idea of granularity. What remains? What happens to the people? And tracing it in terms of that, and looking at agency. Um, I also had a point on the global south question. Should yes, I take of that course. Please. Okay. I think that's a very important point in my research in Armenia. What I found was they called those people grant eaters. You know, the... Um, <laughs> and Sounds so, like Harry Potter. The Harry, yes, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, one example was in, you know, up until 2002, there were only two NGOs that were working on domestic violence. And then when USAID said there was going to be a grant, Uh, over 130 NGOs applied for that grant. So this led to mistrust, and what that's led to in recent years is activists saying, we are not an NGO, we don't want to be an NGO, we are only citizens, because even rejecting civil society. So I think where do you stop this is the question. How do you address it? Because I don't think it's with civil society necessarily. They're just responding to the fact that all of their plentiful money is available. I think we need to go one step above to the donors who fund civil society and who perpetuate some of these right. practices and behaviors of grant chasing and you know funding only the big organizations and funding organizations that can do audits and monitoring and evaluation and you know key performance indicators instead of funding some of the smaller grassroots groups. In the UK, there's now Edge Fund, which is trying to do funding differently, where it's small pots of money to grassroots groups that work on social justice and not having these heavy accountability, monitoring, you know, evaluation things. Obviously, it's a risk. You can't do that with public money because you have to, you know, account to Parliament. But I think, you know, we also need to think where that grant chasing comes from. It's not from, you know, a vacuum.
0: Thank you. Michael, you want to? Okay. Go at this? Um,
4: yeah, I mean, so the civil society and the state. Um, uh, the the main difference is how these entities treat people. So ideally, states and democratic societies treat you as a citizen. Okay, which means you you have a legal status, and other than the legal status, you're basically the same as everybody else. That's ideally how it works. Um, uh, you have certain rights, you have certain responsibilities related to that, but basically otherwise we're treating everybody as equal um, if they're citizens. Um, civil society doesn't treat people as citizens. It treats people as containers of values. And mostly we're going to organize people around their values. Okay. This enables far more particularity. Okay. Um, it also enables much more solidarity um, citizenship can be a powerful source of solidarity, like in wartime, um, but it can also be a very weak basis of solidarity at other times. Um, uh, civil society, for example, can be a way, when it's organized as such, can be a way to give particularistic communities voice, whether they be religious communities or geographic communities, um, or communities of interest, like a class. Uh, and as a result, the, one of the key roles for civil society in democracy is often that of intermediation. That is constituting collective subjects to interact with the state. Okay. Um, and that is somewhat contrary to the logic of states. Um, and they also, the other thing I was going to say, which is also part of your question, is they, they are good at different kinds of things. Um, civil society is often celebrated for its capacity to innovate, for its responsiveness, right, and for its ability to act on the basis of shared values and solidarity. Whereas states are generally more equal, um, more systematic, uh, often slower responding, um, often greater accountability, right? Um, so there are these important distinctions. So the idea, there is the idea out there that in an ideal democratic society, you wouldn't need civil society to mediate between citizens and the government. And there's one view of that, which is Rousseau's general will, which is we are all so much alike that we can think as one, and that's true democracy. <laughs> But the other view of it is Tocqueville's democratic despotism, which is there's nothing mediating between the individual and the leader, which creates tremendous opportunity for manipulation, populism, and so on like that. And his idea is somebody like Orban or Donald Trump. Um, And that's not exactly democracy. You have elections. You can have plebiscites. You can have all kinds of citizen participation that you wouldn't have in a totalitarian regime, but it's not really what we want.
2: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, yes, go on. Sorry. Did you want to say anything
1: No, okay. no I don't know. Yeah. So, a couple of things. One on the, on the state. So, in, uh, imagine a perfect democracy. Um, the state, if you think about the state as a system, it's not a very good evolving system. You don't have the equivalent of creative destruction in the markets in the state. So, the state gets stuck, whereas the world moves on. One of the roles of civil society after it's got, you know, after the, fee- after the sort of checks and balances work, the next one is incubation and harnessing and telling, showing the state that things are changing, new groups are emerging, new, new issues are arising. And that's historically been one of the roles of civil society as an incubator for new experiments which then get adopted by the state. So I think that would be one, one thing that would still be going on. Um, great question on, on uh, grant eaters. Um, uh, I think a couple of things on this. One is um, be careful how much money you give. Right. The really interesting work from Pakistan by Masuda Bano showing that if you give a civil society organisation $10,000, it's probably quite useful. You know, it can pay to get people to the demo, it can pay the, pay the food for, 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 for members. Give it $10 million and you're going to kill it. Right. So there's a real problem about the fact that aid often goes at scale into situations where giving large amounts of money is very destructive. In, in the Pakistan study, even if the leaders of the civil society organization didn't steal the money, all the members of those organizations thought they did, and therefore they all left. Right? So, so it's just absolutely catastrophic impact on member-driven organizations. So thinking about how you give small amounts of money, which is very difficult for the aid business, I think is, is one thing. The other one is... It's not true that there's loads of aid and there's no, no other money. That's just a kind of lazy thinking. Aid is $130 billion a year globally, right? Zakat, one form of altruistic giving, which is that Muslims are supposed to give one-fortieth of their wealth every year, is about seven times that globally. There are huge amounts of altruistic giving, money sloshing around in developing countries. It's just not been harnessed. There is a, um, you know, there's Doctors Without Borders. We all know about them. There's Engineers Without Borders. There's Accountants Without Borders. Clowns Without Borders. There's even a Borders Without Borders for skateboarders, right? (laughs) There is no Fundraisers Without Borders. There's no one going to southern civil society organisations and saying, here's some ideas about how you can raise money locally and get yourself off aid and actually become accountable to local constituencies in the process. That is such a big gap in the way the aid business keeps people dependent on it. Uh, And I think it would be fantastic to try and address that.
0: Then we have the last question on media and the individuals.
1: Who would like to take that,
0: Michael? Uh,
4: I mean, very briefly, I'll say you know this is a quest- This is probably the most common question that's an issue that students want to talk about in my classes is the transformed media landscape and the way that that impacts activism. Because there is a narrative about how empowering social media is for enabling protests. Yeah. Right. Um, a lot of that came from the Arab Spring. Some of it came from Occupy, um, uh, and it's a narrative which is powerful and um, problematic. Uh, So I have a friend who was doing his doctoral research in Tehran during the Green Revolution, and he wrote an ethnography of the protests, and, you know, that was when Facebook was first being used for protests. And, you know, his first point was, like, I was following it on Facebook, and I was trying to show up at the protests based on what was happening on Facebook, but there were, like, 20 different directions for where it was – when it was, who was organizing it. It's like if you were just paying attention to Facebook, you would have been on the subway all day and you never would have found <laughs> the protest. Um, people were responding based upon the authority that organizations and individuals had that would enable them to tell where to go and so on like that. In other words, it was still the prior organization that made it work. Um, so I often ask my students, you know, what, is, what is the central contribution that social media makes that improves it as a medium of communication over, say, a leaflet? Well, you can reach a lot of people, but they're disconnected people. You have no idea how they'll respond, right? Um, The information is more or less the same. But what have you also lost? Well, you've lost the possibility to have a conversation with somebody about the issue in the course of disseminating the information, which is exactly why union organizers use leaflets. It's not to convey information. It's to initiate a conversation, right? Um, uh, The other thing that that misses is, is that social media as a medium is primarily designed to derive profit. And extract profit, and as a result, it is a very active form of mediating information, which can be very disruptive for lots of kinds of um, uh, political work, organizational work, so on, like that. Finally, social media is probably a far better tool of surveillance than it is of activism. Um, you know, you saw it during the Arab Spring. Egypt, the Egyptian government, for example, shut down the internet basically to prevent people from using it. Um, The Chinese government has a very different reaction to this kind of thing. Like, no, we want people using the Internet. That way we can surveil them better. Um, And Facebook is a tremendously powerful tool of surveillance. Google is a tremendously powerful tool of surveillance. One of the innovations that enabled the Trump campaign to win, despite having pollsters and political professionals often refusing to work with him, was the fact that he hired the guy who made the Trump organization websites to be the guy who managed... um, uh, Uh, information about the voting electorate and he didn't know anything about polling and he went to Facebook who he'd always used and he said what information can you give me about the electorate and they gave him all kinds of information that pollsters don't have um, which enabled them to craft micro-targeted messages to everybody on the internet which enabled them to demobilize black voters in some random suburb of Detroit over some local issue in a way that the Clinton campaign was never even aware of, right? Um, So as a tool of surveillance, it's at least as powerful, and as a tool of manipulating people prior to them actually being organized, it's also extremely powerful and disruptive. Um, And these are the things that I'm most worried about with social media, and I think is where the greatest potential lies, and it's not something to celebrate. It's a problem.
0: Okay. That, I think brings us to the end of the panel. Thank you so much to the panelists for participating.